Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Um, before we begin the formal proceedings, I'd like to first acknowledge here in the audience this evening the relatively new US Consul General, uh, Sharon Hudson-Dean. Sharon, great to see you. And I'd, I'd also like to acknowledge here in the audience uh, Feng Zhongyi. Now, he is a China expert at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he found himself at the sharp end of Beijing's censorship efforts. Uh, I think it was in March last year when he was detained in China. He was doing research on uh, human rights in China and he was eventually released. And he's had some controversies at the University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, Feng Zhongyi, great to see you, mate. Thanks so much. I think it's, I think it's fair to say that a spectre is haunting some of our universities in the Western world and it's a spectre of uh, illiberalism. And I think this is especially true in the United States and Britain, where dissenting speakers on campuses have been shouted down and even physically assaulted to enforce some kind of ideological conformity. Now, I don't think this is happening in this country, uh, not to the same extent at this stage. However, uh, we'd be naive if we think we are immune to these illiberal trends abroad. Now, for over the past half century, this great state of New South Wales has become a global hub for higher education. And make no mistake, as our guest speaker will soon make very clear, a robust international student market in New South Wales is a good thing. However, in recent times, a sense of angst has dogged the debate about higher education in this state and elsewhere in the country? Do certain foreign interests intimidate student bodies and academics? Does the increasing reliance on international student fees threaten both their long-term fiscal sustainability and their academic independence? Now, Minister Stokes will make a few general remarks about defending the university. Uh, there were stories already today in the Australian newspaper and the Sydney Morning Herald when I got into my Uber this morning at 6.25, the first thing I heard on ABC local radio was a preview uh, to this very event. Um, afterwards, I will ask the minister questions. I will raise questions about China and uh, how universities are looking to China for new sources of research income and if indeed there are any attempts by Beijing to influence our university culture. But in the meantime, please join me in welcoming the Education Minister of New South Wales, Robert Stokes. Thanks, Tom, for that welcome. Normally when I get called Robert, I'm in trouble, so hopefully I'm not. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk today about our universities, our higher education sector in this state and this country. It is one of the jewels of Australian culture and society, but it's also important in, uh, in admiring our jewels that we also take steps to defend them. A perennial debate amongst political theorists is whether institutions have the power to affect or influence behaviour. Those subscribing to schools of realist and neo-realist neo thought assume not. They assume that all behaviour is simply a Machiavellian pursuit of self-interest. Conversely, conservatives and constructivists contend that institutions matter and they matter a great deal. Conservatives argue that the natural state of Hobbesian anarchy is tempered by the soft power of institutions. Constructivists argue that institutions can shape and dictate cultural norms, giving legitimacy to ideas and to actions. If there is a type of institution that most validates the arguments of both conservatives and constructivists, it's our universities. They're the beating heart of our educational firmament. They not only drive our increasingly complex economy, but they also help to shape the intellectual and cultural zeitgeist. They incubate ideological and sociological viewpoints in those who will lead the governments and the society of tomorrow. Through the dissemination of ideas that are debated on campus, universities uphold the pillars of free speech 
and intellectual freedom that define liberal democracies such as ours around the world. Over the past 50 years, New South Wales has become a global hub for higher education. We have more universities than ever before, ranked in the top 300 worldwide. And we take this city as just one example, several of our higher degree institutions, or higher, higher education institutions, are ranked in the, uh, among the very top anywhere in the world. Uh, it, it would be difficult to think of another city with such a concentration of uh, globally ranked uh, uh, universities. International education has become our lar largest service-based export industry and our third largest export industry overall. The quality of research from our major universities ensures that we are at the forefront of 21st century knowledge and the 21st century knowledge economy. Yet, our universities face unprecedented challenges to their financial and cultural strength and also their ideological diversity. Financially, the increasing reliance on international student fees and on particular sources of international students threatens both their long-term fiscal sustainability and their academic independence. Culturally, the rise of identity politics and far-left groupthink within certain faculties has created a monoculture that has narrowed robust debate to the point of non-existence. So today I'll speak on these twin challenges as my contribution to the dialogue around how we safeguard the future of these great institutions. As I opened with, education has become a mass global commodity. If you, if you will, education is one of the islets through which the thread of, of the global economy has become linked. The booming economies of Asia are bringing record numbers of people out of poverty and into the middle class, creating an unprecedented demand for tertiary qualifications. And our universities here in, in New South Wales are perfectly placed to meet this demand. Foreign student numbers in Sydney alone have jumped 50% in the last two years uh, and 50% more than they did in the entire decade beforehand. Indeed, fee income from international students now surpasses that of domestic students, making up a quarter of all university revenue in New South Wales, a point noted with some concern by the New South Wales Auditor General. Now, in and of itself, as Tom mentioned, a robust international student market in New South Wales is a good thing, it's a great thing. Diversity of nationalities on campus facilitates the exchange of culture, of ideas, of viewpoints, an exchange that would not occur if we retained the ethnocentric approach to higher education of many years ago. Yet our universities are sleepwalking into the dangerous fiscal trap of over-reliance on one income stream, where a sharp drop in international students, particularly from one or another point source, would render many of them financially either unviable or in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, in financial straits. Part of the reason universities find themselves in this perilous situation is they've become exponentially more costly to operate. They've become massive, ungainly behemoths spanning multiple campuses, offering a vast range of degrees to bloated student cohorts. To support such an expansive operation in the midst of a constrained federal funding environment, they must use international student fees to cross-subsidise both their day-to-day -day operations and also their vital research. Our universities are thus racing furiously toward the same point of difference, with a risk uh, that the focus on size and market share uh, comes at the cost of building disciplinary strength. Yet there are voices in Parliament that evidently don't see this as a bad thing. When talking to a federal MP the other month, I was surprised to hear the view put forth that the bigger and the fewer our universities, the better, uh, making quality control and funding regulation easier to manage. Also, I suppose, in light of the experience of deregulation in the vocational education sector, that that led to real concerns about quality uh, across the expansive number of institutions uh, that emerged, uh, that instead the, the idea that we have bigger and fewer universities is seen in some quarters as a good thing. I believe that's short-sighted for a number of reasons. To start with, 
it means there's a lack of diversity of thought within our higher education landscape. Take the US as a comparison. In the US, the monocultural nature of large universities is balanced by hundreds of smaller liberal arts colleges that adhere to alternate philosophic and religious viewpoints. This variety of, of small liberal arts colleges and also a mix between private universities and public universities ensures a real contest of ideas between uh, different higher education institutions, each with uh, different uh, um, institutional arrangements and governance arrangements, a contest that simply does not exist in Australia due to the market being dominated by giant publicly funded universities that have enrolments in many cases of well over 40,000 students. Indeed, in Australia, 12 of our 41 universities have more than 40,000 universities. As a point of comparison, Canada, a country with comparable demographics, has 96 universities, only four of which have over 40,000 enrolments. Even university rankings indicate that there's no correlation between size and quality. Oxford, ranked number one in the world, has a student cohort of just under 24,000 students. Monash University, a, a leading Australian university, has a cohort of almost 75,000 students. So the size of our universities itself points to the large and growing numbers of and dependence on international students and the perils of overexposure to a single source of income. The risks of this overexposure, however, are not just limited to fiscal sustainability. The academic independence of our universities is also at stake. This is because our universities are often reliant on international student fees from countries with divergent views on things such as intellectual freedom and the right to protest. This is not to denigrate the crucial importance of these countries to the prosperity of New South Wales, nor is it to denigrate their culture, the value of close diplomatic ties, or their sovereign right to decide upon their own system of government. But we're increasingly finding ourselves in a situation where any type of constructive criticism of these countries within universities, or in, in fact of, of different styles of government uh, within universities, is met with howls of outrage from student bodies that are funded by and affiliated with foreign governments. Of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with international students on campus vocally supporting their home nation's interests. In fact, in some cases, it's completely uh, legitimate and understandable. Academic freedom on campus extends to everyone, including international student groups. But when academics who criticise certain countries or certain governments are hauled before senior diplomats to explain themselves, or when universities self-censor by using teaching materials that conform with foreign government propaganda so as not to upset international student cohorts, we have a duty as educators to speak out. Academic independence is something we should never put a price on. It is a non-negotiable part of our educational landscape. While the fiscal challenges facing our universities are self-evident, the cultural challenges are often more nebulous and harder to pinpoint. Key amongst these challenges is the increasingly intolerant nature of many faculties, something we are seeing, as Tom mentioned, uh, overseas, but something that is starting to be reflected in Australian universities as well. Uh, <clears throat> some faculties have become increasingly dominated by left-wing groupthink, so those with divergent views are either shouted down or completely shut out, creating an Orwellian culture of intellectualised bigotry. These faculties are no longer places where diversity of thoughts seem to be accepted. Support Israel? You're a conservative troglodyte who supports the murder of children. Have religious beliefs? You're an anti-intellectual homophobe. Have a balanced view of European histories and, and post-colonial Australia. You're a jingoistic imperialist with racist tendencies. Ra rational academic debate now often seems secondary to spouting, to spouting tokenistic tirades at conservative straw men. This is not to say that there's not great merit in the philosophical arguments put forth by thinkers traditionally embraced by the left. Indeed, the contributions of thinkers like Karl Marx, Max Weber, Emile Durkheim, and later Jürgen Habermas or Henri Lefebvre are, are crucial parts of the sociological and political landscape. Without uh, these thinkers and, uh, and the, the schools of thought that they 
um, that they incubated, we'd never have seen the rise of critical theory, of challenges to traditional positivism, of post-structuralism or teleological models of social change. But more and more frequently, both amongst the student cohort and amongst faculty staff, there is a subtle yet concerted push to restrict intellectual debate. Universities are increasingly expected to be safe places, free from ideas that have the capacity to offend. Confronting material used in lectures often now must include a trigger warning before being taught. Speakers with opinions perceived to be offensive are no platformed. This proliferation of safe spaces, of trigger warnings and no platforming sanitises the university experience. You should go to university to be confronted and to have your outlook challenged. That is the point. Universities should not be places where you have to, where you go to have your pre-existing opinions validated by an echo chamber. If at an, at, at an intellectual level, a person does not have the constitution to cope with hearing views that they find confronting or even offensive, then they should perhaps reconsider whether a university is the right environment for them to learn in. Those who support practices such as no platforming counter this argument by saying that we've always had limits to freedom of speech and that it would be inappropriate uh, to allow, for example, a Holocaust-denying neo-Nazi to give a lecture on a university campus. Well, of course, that is true. But existing anti-discrimination legislation already prescribes hate speech on campus or anywhere else for that matter. In the overwhelming majority of cases, the individuals being no-platformed are not extremists, but simply those who either have a different opinion or, more concerningly, are a member of a religion or a citizen of a country that virtue signal, uh, signalling activists have deemed oppressive. And no country is a greater target of this censorious desire than Israel. Those of the Jewish faith or those supportive of Israel's right to exist are increasingly being targeted by self-righteous students and staff who use the thin veil of political activism to disguise their naked anti-Semitism. This anti-Semitism has reached a point where individuals whose area of expertise have nothing at all to do with politics are being boycotted from appearing on campus simply because they are Jewish. Recent examples of this include academics banding together to boycott a talk about cybersecurity by an Israeli writer, uh, students and staff at a different <coughs> university loudly interrupting a talk by a British army officer who served in Gaza by yelling through a megaphone and waving money in front of an elderly Jewish woman's face. And an entire university department vol volunteering to, ho to host boycott divestment sanctions movement conferences. Imagine being a Jewish student that wants to study in these faculties. How would they feel? Would their work be read fairly? Would they be the target of anti-Semitic abuse? The fact that pro-BDS activists refuse to even listen to the arguments of those who take a less than critical view of Israel shows that anti-Israel sentiment on campus has gone beyond the right to protest and is now, in many cases, straight up prejudice. As one brave academic responded in an email to colleagues of hers trying to boycott uh, a talk from an Israeli citizen, and I quote, how can one oppose what one does not know? How can you argue against his views if you have not heard them? True words have never been spoken. Real academics engage ideas openly. They don't reject them out of hand because they've made a lazy ideological judgment about the person giving them. So ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to conclude by issuing a call to arms. A call to arms for anyone involved with the university, whether it's as a student, as alumni, as staff, or as a supporter, or just as a general citizen of a free and open society, to defend the independence of our universities. Ensure they remain bastions of free thought, of enlightenment and discovery by keeping them places that encourage open debate. Open debate by everyone. The future is incredibly exciting. A strong, independent higher education sector is crucial if we are to realise the potential that the future offers. I know our Vice-Chancellors do an amazing job and we have extraordinary university leadership in this country. I know that our universities are among the finest anywhere in the world. 
However, we must confront the challenges I've spoken about uh, today head on if our universities are to retain and enhance and strengthen their competitive edge in the decades to come. Rob, thank you very much for those remarks that were previewed in the Herald and the Australian Today. Uh, in your remarks, you make the point that, quote, we are increasingly finding ourselves in a situation where any type of constructive criticism of these countries within universities is met with howls of outrage from student bodies that are funded by and affiliated with these governments. And then you go on to say, when academics who criticise certain countries a hall before senior diplomats to explain themselves. We have a duty as educators to speak out. Uh, what countries or governments are you referring to? Uh, well, you look at, frankly, the top 10 of uh, where uh, our, uh, our university, um, our international students are coming from. In, in, um, uh, in, in Australia, for example, 80% of our international students come from only 10 countries. That's a similar level of um, of dominance by particular, uh, by, by particular uh, countries, um, as in New Zealand, uh, and uh, so we 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 have more reliance on uh, on just a few countries than any than any other uh, university sector on earth, uh, and the, the the first among them is China, uh, but we also have uh, rapid increasing uh, increases in the number of international students from Nepal. Uh, from the, the highest rate of growth has been Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, also from other countries with uh, Vietnam, other countries uh, with quite different political systems and certainly that don't necessarily share um, the, the tradition of liberal democracy that we have. A year ago, the group of uh, eight, a year ago, a group of eight universities, uh, they put out a statement saying that it was China, the Chinese government was interfering on campuses. How so? Uh, well, I, I can't speak for those universities, but I can say that um, there are a range of governments, including um, China, um, that have put forward forthright views in relation to um, the uh, the role of their um, of their market share and what they and the, and the soft power um, that they believe comes along with it. And in one sense, they're completely right. Of course, when you have uh, dominance of particular point source income. Uh, that brings with it a voice. In recent times, we've had um, academics such as James Leibold from La Trobe University in Melbourne, uh, Clive Hamilton from Charles Sturt University. Uh, they have argued that uh, China is monitoring what is being taught, whitewashing history, and creating a sense of reciprocity in a textbook, a textbook use of soft power. Plausible? Well, uh, um, yes, because countries have done this uh, for, for, for all time. Um, and the use and projection of soft power is one of the you know, legitimate forms of, uh, of uh, expressing uh, of, of foreign policy. So there's nothing um, unusual or, in one sense, inappropriate about the exercise of soft power. Um, there are plenty of, I mean, the, the US Studies Centre is a good example of the exercise of soft power. The very anglophilic nature of our higher um, degree institutions itself is an example of soft power. There's nothing, in one sense, inappropriate about it, but it's also important to call it out and to unmask it for what it yeah, is. I can assure you, as someone who worked at the United States Studies Centre for, for the best part of a decade, uh, none of our academics were uh, inclined to even be sympathetic to Donald Trump in the 2016 election. I don't know if you could say the same thing about so-called Confucius Institutes on campuses across the country, your response. Well, well uh, and I think what you're referring to there is that there is a different political culture and also a different, um, I suppose, um, uh, well, a different system of government. Yeah. And that's reflected in the exercise of soft power by different countries. I'm not suggesting in one sense that that, that in and of itself is inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that it's important to recognise it for what it is and also to recognise the challenges that come along with the exercise of soft power, whether it be over-reliance on single source of income. So, for example, it would be very easy 
um, if you are reliant on a single source of income for a change in, uh, in outlook by a foreign government, for example, or a change in visa requirements, uh, for, 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 for that source of income uh, to, to be strangled, um, and with it comes the risk uh, that, uh, 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 that, that that dependence uh, causes universities to act in a particular way to the detriment of academic freedom, and that's the real point. But on the other hand, is there a danger we're overstating the problem here? I mean, last year, about 80 academics penned an open letter, and they denied that Australian experts on China had been, quote, intimidated or bought off by pro-China interests. A year ago, an ACRI survey, now ACRI is the Australia-China Research Institute at UTS that's head by the former Foreign Minister Bob Carr, but they came out with a survey that found um, you know, there are, more, there are about 200,000 Chinese citizens studying at more than 30 Australian universities, and according to ACRI, not a single incident was classroom discussion um, or freedom of expression shut down. Well, well, first, I'd be—I'd question how they could possibly know that. Um, but, 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 secondly, isn't it interesting that you have, um, you know, ACRI on the one hand, um, which is um, well supported and well recognised, uh, and is part of the, the firmament of a leading university, and yet then on the other side you have the Ramsey Institute that can't even get itself uh, into a university. So there are different rules for for different uh, for, for different groupings, a and that's fine in one sense. What I'm arguing is not in any sense to muzzle um, the, the, the soft power in one sense or ex the expression of it um, by foreign governments, but rather to A, recognise it for what it is, but also to recognise that freedom of academic expression and thought works both ways. Now, on the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation, it is interesting that in recent times, a group of 100 academics at the University of Sydney signed an open letter saying that uh, they strongly opposed the creation of the Ramsey Centre at the university. But this has all happened as the Confucius Centre has operated at the university for the past decade. How do you account for that? Well, I can't. Um, I mean, quite simply. And, uh, and certainly, I mean, the Confucius Institute, as an example, again, uh, I mean, that operates within the uh, New South Wales Department of Education. Let's just clarify for everyone what the Confucius Institute is. Uh, well, it's it, in one sense, uh, again, another, it's, it's a, a, an organisation that facilitates exchange between uh, academics or teachers um, with, uh, with, uh, with Chinese institutions. It's a, um, it bridges um, uh, cultural understanding and, uh, uh, and provides language courses, and in many ways it's an excellent opportunity for many Australian students. Um, and it operates in some ways like uh, Alliance Francaise or the Goethe Institute or any of these uh, sort of uh, relationships or arrangements between uh, foreign governments and, uh, and Australian institutions. The, 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 the difference with Confucius is its governance is quite different. And certainly in the uh, New South Wales Department of Education, we've actually put a pause on those exchanges while we investigate the internal governance, not because we don't welcome uh, sort of connections uh, with, uh, with, with China, but to ensure that the governance and the institutional design of these arrangements has a level of consistency so that all uh, these relationships are treated transparently and openly and the same. Now, when you postponed this year's trip in May, I think you made the announcement that Sydney Daily Telegraph said that your department halted the travel program, quote, amid concerns it is a propaganda exercise for the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. Um, well, I think... <laughs> Uh, yeah, love the Daily Telegraph, don't you? Um, uh, the, uh, um, and, and I think the answer there is quite obviously... It wouldn't be just the Daily Telegraph, it'd be yeah. Clive Hamilton as well, yeah, yeah. the man of the left. That's right. And and this goes beyond ideology, doesn't it? Which, which is a fascinating uh, reflection on this debate, that it's actually both sides mm -hmm. uniting on common cause because it's the cause of intellectual freedom. Um, I think here the, the, the reason for that pause was literally it would not be appropriate to take money from an organisation at the same time as you're reviewing its purpose um, and its operation. So I think that was just the ethically the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Cheeky question, but it has to be asked in the current context, given your, your, your positions on this um, uh, Confucius Institute. Um, do you ever think your, your phone is being tapped by um, Chinese authorities? Um, I, uh, I, I really can't answer that. <laughs> What, to what extent uh, did the interactions between Labor politicians and Chinese business people and political donors 
uh, shape your position to conduct the, the review that led to the, uh, the postponement of this program? Uh, no, my concerns were not in any sense partisan. I mean, the, the connections between Labor politicians and Chinese identities is well known and that's a matter for them. Mm -hmm. um, this was literally looking at appropriate institutional design. Um, so in one sense, there was no, you know, there, there was, sort of nothing nefarious behind our concerns, uh, sorry, the, 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 the nature of our concerns was not of nefarious activity. It was literally, well, hang on, you have one relationship that has uh, really no transparency in relation to how it is governed compared to other relationships with other governments that are far more transparent. So it occurred to me that we need to have a level of consistency. So I want to make it clear that we welcome uh, the opportunity uh, for engagement, and in fact we should. I mean, China is you know, a, a very significant partner and will continue to be a significant partner. So those connections are vitally important and in our national interest and in China's national interest. But we also need to make sure that there is a consistent uh, and strong and robust and clear transparent governance framework so we understand the nature of those engagements. Okay, what about the, uh, the fiscal sustainability of the higher education sector? You mentioned that in your speech. Um, to what extent will the sector's growing dependency on the China market uh, cloud the judgment of senior university administrators? We've had, as we mentioned, the group of eight coming out last year raising these concerns, but the more Chinese students that come into the country, the more foreign students that come to the country, isn't this a problem in terms of uh, clouding the views of administrators and especially academics conceivably? Well, it, it's both. It is a problem, but it's also an opportunity and we need to recognise both sides of it. The problem was recognised by ANU when they identified uh, the increasing over-reliance on a single source of income and that's just, you know, sensible uh, sort of planning ahead, hedging bets in, in, in one sense. Um, and so, you know, my call is certainly on university administrators to recognise that. Uh, Sydney University, for example, about a third of students are international students now and, uh, and the majority of those are from China. So that, that indicates a particular reliance on a particular source of income uh, and regardless of whether they came from Kazakhstan or Britain, you know, it would be the same concern. Um, but uh, we also need to recognise that there is an enormous opportunity with Chinese students as well in to exercise Australia's soft power uh, to demonstrate the merits of a of liberal democratic values uh, to um, to you know to to, to embed uh, foreign students in the experience of what uh, real freedom looks like, which is on the other side why we need to protect academic freedom so that those students can actually experience. Uh, all the strengths of a liberal democracy. China is our most important trade partner, has been for more than a decade. It's increasingly a very important source of foreign investment. We've mentioned the, the students, obviously that's an important factor for our higher education sector. Is there anything we discussed this morning, do you think it's conceivable this will have a detrimental impact on the importance of the Sino-Australian relationship? No, because I think uh, a robust relationship is transparent and discusses ideas openly. Um, you know, any relationship will involve uh, the discussion of, you know, of clear communication and also um, having a robust understanding of each other's uh, worldview and point of view. Uh, and so discussions like this should be welcomed and celebrated. And it'll be interesting to see if there is any, uh, you know, uh, um, any debate uh, following this that s somehow it was inappropriate to have these discussions. It's, it's very appropriate we have these discussions. Um, but also I think uh, one, one point of, of my speech that I also wanted to um, focus us on today is the increasing size of our universities. Part of, as uh, my predecessor Adrian Piggerley said, even if federal funding for universities was stronger, universities would still be exploiting the opportunity to go after the international student dollar because it's there. But my question is, our universities are becoming enormous, globally enormous. And I think it's worth asking the question as to why and does this make them stronger? And I also think that there is the opportunity to look at having a diversification of different voices in higher education. 
I mean, we have taken it, uh, it's, it's sort of a, you know, a heuristic through which we view higher ed that all our universities, except for maybe Bond on, on one you know, end, mm. are public, um, publicly funded research universities. Why? Uh, why can't we have a multiplicity of views? Uh, I mean, I, I look at, we've got a now I think a single liberal arts college in this city of Campion College, uh, which comes from a Catholic tradition. Why don't we have more of those? Why, why you know, why don't we have a, uh, a broader range of higher degree institutions and now that uh, we don't need the sort of administrative core uh, that large universities have needed in the past, um, why can't we free this up more and have a greater diversity um, of institutions as well as of views? Okay, well now it's time for Q&A and we have time for about two or three questions. Yes, sir, at the back there. Yeah, Jane, you're right. Yes. Um Seeing uh, the Maoists actually killed more people than the Nazis, if they ban so-called Holocaust deniers from the university, why can't why don't they ban the Confucius Institutes, who denied who were in the business of denying the Chinese Holocaust? Well, a forty million and seventy million people died uh, in China from forty-nine to well, the early to mid seventies. And look, I, I take that as a comment. Um, there's nothing I can add to, to what you say. Thanks. Yes. Sure. Yeah, Robin, over there. Uh, Jane, yeah, just wait for the microphone, Robin. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, wondering if you can explain why, uh, when I was growing up at university, uh, freedom of speech was regarded as a left-wing virtue. Now it's regarded as a right-wing vice. Um, <laughs> and um, also, um, wondering, do you think there is, a, uh, apropos your last comment, case for universities seriously looking at major demergers uh, after the Dawkins so-called reforms? Yeah, so, so the first po uh, point is really quite an interesting philosophic debate because it's really the contest between two um, ideas of freedom. Uh, there's, there's, the, the, there's the freedom from and the freedom for. Um, the freedom from are, are associated more with, with left-wing ideas of freedom, which are, you know, universal human rights and those things which are crucially important, but they are, uh, they, they are negative freedoms. The positive freedoms extend more to freedom of speech and, and what you do with the freedom that you have by living in a liberal democratic society. So that's the difference because freedom means, uh, freedom's paradoxical um, uh, and freedoms conflict with one another. Um, and so I am not suggesting for one moment that freedom of speech should not be limited in a, in a civilised society. Of course it should be, but we need to be extremely careful at those limits and of course we should keep prodding at them. Um, so so th there is a paradox there. Uh, the, 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 the second point in terms of uh, demergers of universities, something that I have been concerned about is I think we're going in the opposite direction and uh, in, in one sense, some of those ideas have been novel and worth exploring. A good example would be uh, the new alliance between uh, UNSW, Wollongong and Newcastle, because that alliance is not so much a merger as more a, a coalescence, a bit like the model of the University of London or um, the University of California, where they are separate institutions, but they are sort of, they, they come together um, uh, for, for, for particular reasons, to exert strength in particular causes. So that's not necessarily a problem. Um, sort of these loose confederations, I think they're worth looking at. Um, what does concern me though is a sort of, almost the, the, the sort of spatial colonialism of universities that, oh quick, we need a, a new, uh, we need a new innovation hub, or we better be there, we better be here, we better be there. And you've got all these campuses scattered around um, the, the countryside when there's an, an amazing opportunity for them to be different institutions and more institutions. Okay. Yes, over there, Jane, right here. No, that, that, that. Okay, I have a question for the minister about the Confucius Institute because from a Chinese website of the uh, United Front. It said that the Confucius the Institute. Uh, it's it's this article was written by a foreign language university in China. It says the Confucius the Institute brand was launched, creating a new way for the overseas United Front work in certain areas, and talk about five ways uh, to do the United Front work with foreign language program, 
and the like alumni, like like club, all these things. So when we are sure that the Confucius Institute is a is the organ of the United Front, I just wonder why can't we, like uh, as a education department, to consider shut down the department because it's quite different from the uh, like language program you said in from other country. And uh, add one more thing, because in Chinese, uh, in a very old book of a Chinese book called Book of Change, written 3,000 years ago, it says the invisible and the intangible is a Tao. Visible and tangible is just a container. So I think it's very important we separate uh, what the container is and what it contains, mm. and the shell of a culture and the essence of a culture. So when the shell of the culture is used for these kind of purposes, I just find that our government can't just treat it as a normal, like uh, a language program. It's a political tool. It's a it's a tool of a ideological war between the free society and the the communist ideology. So I wonder if we can do something more than just uh, what we what's happening now. Thank you. Yeah. Well, to 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 your to your to 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 the totality of what you said, I mean, um, firstly, that was very profound, and s secondly, um, there's a difference between higher education and within the Department of Education. Uh, higher education institutes are uh, self-governing. Um, I can provide some guidance and views. Uh, technically, at the end of the day, they are created under New South Wales legislation, so we, we do have some tools to control universities, but generally internal governance uh, of universities as self-governing institutions. In relation to the Department of Education, when we have programs uh, operating within schools, approach, and that's why reviewing that program and suspending its operation while it's under review. But I need to be careful to emphasise that we actually encourage with uh, uh, different groups, uh, with foreign governments, uh, because the exchanges that they can facilitate are enormously powerful. It's just that we need to have a common, transparent understanding of their governance and what they are there to achieve. There are some of the um, uh, sort of uh, um, less visible uh, uh, sort of um, ideas behind these sorts of institutes. We need to expose them. And, uh, and we need to discuss them robustly and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and show them for, for what they are uh, and then have a level of consistency about our engagement with foreign governments. We welcome it. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I don't want to say anything to suggest that we want to exclude different ideas. That itself would be limiting um, freedom of expression. Um, but those partnerships need to be transparent and they need to be consistent. Yeah, and, and that's a matter for university administrators to investigate and for alumni, and that's why my call to arms was effectively anyone who's got a link. Also, it's why if, uh, if, if certain organisations can operate within universities and within the administration of universities, then why, to quote the, the, uh, the, the, the Ramsey Centre, can't others? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I think we've got time for at least one more question. I think, is that John? Back there? Working? Yep, thank you. Uh, Tom, I think you correctly uh, have identified the Confucius Institute by calling them so-called Confucius Institutes. I think that's a, that's a good start. <laughs> okay. um, I'm just wondering, uh, um, Minister Stokes, if you're familiar with the work done in Canada on Confucius Institutes and also the uh, Board of Studies in Toronto in 2014, they rejected having Confucius classrooms in their school district. And the, uh, there's, I've just got to read his name because it's hard for me to remember. There's a guy who was the um, former chief of the Asia-Pacific Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, Michael Juno Katsuya, 36 years. That's the, the um, Canadian version of, of ASIO. He gave very clear testimony that these institutes, and if you get them into classrooms and schools, they're even worse, that they are part of the long game China plans in generations, not in years, and it's part of the long game to influence our society. 
So one, the other question is, in the federal parliament, it, we had someone uh, showed the film in the name of Confucius, was supported by Michael Danby and the Australian Tibet Council. I would hope, and I hope you would work to have that film shown in the New South Wales Parliament Theatrette, because mm. it really helps a lot of people understand this issue. Consider the appropriate way forward there. Um, the, in, in, in relation to your first point, um, I'm very aware of the Canadian experience um, and that has been shared by other governments as well and that's why here in New South Wales we took the, um, the, uh, the, the step of suspending the operation of the program while it can be reviewed. But again, I, I want to stress, you know, I certainly welcome the opportunity to work with any foreign government and certainly if foreign governments are prepared to provide opportunities to teachers and students that's a good thing um, but certainly when it's embedded within a New South Wales government uh, instrumentality then it needs to operate according to our rules and not to externally imposed rules. Okay now for vote of thanks okay we can have one one, one last question here uh, just one last and try to be quick and uh, we'll do the, uh, we'll have to wrap things up very quickly. Yes, sir. Yep. Oh, here's your mic. Yep. Duncan Iverson from the University of University Sydney. Of Sydney yeah. uh, there's so much to comment on, but I guess just two quick things. I think, Minister, no GOA would disagree that more diversity in the higher education system would be welcome. I don't think the move to uh, scale is being driven by a rapacious uh, desire to grow. It's partly a function of the funding system and the flexibility that comes with international students as compared to domestic. So I think there's a structural question there, which it would be wonderful to have you advocating in Canberra for us around those areas. That's a, that's a really important point. So I accept that Australian universities are large, but that's in part driven by the policy settings that you could actually help influence. And, and the desire for more diversity in, in the sector would be highly welcome, I think, by all GOAs. On Confucius, I think it's very important to understand all one should not be complacent. However, there's a big difference between a Confucius Institute offering language programs and cultural programs and uh, a center or institute offering a degree. And that's the essential difference between the debate about Ramsey, which is ongoing, and the situation of Confucius in a university like Sydney or New South Wales or, or elsewhere. They're very, very different things. And I think the, the key thing is the transparency that you've called for is one that is fully, I think, endorsed uh, by any university that hosts a Confucius Institute like our own. And that's a very important first principle that I think we share. Thank you, Duncan. Um, uh, and thank you, Duncan. And I was worried about getting a question from you. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, in relation to the structural uh, um, the, the, the influences of institutional design in terms of our funding and the decisions that universities make, I entirely agree. And uh, you know, I certainly want to be an advocate uh, for, for changing those structural arrangements to make sure that universities uh, are led to make decisions in the broader national interest, uh, as well as in their own interests as well, um, because I, th I do think the settings are leading to particular decision making. And I was, and which is why I referred to it in the speech, I was concerned at this view uh, that comes out of some in Canberra that, no, 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 we want fewer universities and we want them to be bigger because then we can control them better. And I don't think that meant controlling the ideas expressed in them, but controlling them from a quality control perspective uh, and also from a funding regulation perspective. And I think the experience of the, uh, of, of the deregulation of vocational education has scared everyone into thinking deregulation is a terrible thing in education. Um, and I think the operation of the VET sector is quite different uh, to um, the, the higher ed sector and I don't think it would have the same result. I also think that there's tremendous opportunity for decentralisation uh, in having a, a broader sweep of liberal arts colleges, for example. You look at the United States and some of the you know, regional cities and provincial towns have owe their entire existence uh, to a, uh, a liberal arts college that has spawned a whole series of uh, industries around it and so forth. And I think one of the reasons that we haven't got the same pattern of decentralisation is all the higher education opportunities are centred in, in certain spatial locations. And I applaud the fact uh, that the universities are looking for opportunities to, to move out into other regions because there's a spatial justice side of that as well. Um, but in relation to... Uh, the operation of, um, uh, of, of institutes within universities and whether they're d degree conferring or not. In one sense, I think 
degrees matter less than they used to, um, and uh, you know the the, the 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 product, if you like, of 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 education is less important than the process. Um, and so I, I don't get as hung up in relation to whether an institute controls access to a, a degree or whether it has influence within um, uh, teaching programs itself. I'm not sure if that matters terribly much. Well, thank you. And now to do uh, the vote of thanks, I'd like to call on my colleague who's the head of research here at the Centre for Independent Studies, Simon Cowan. Uh, thank you very much and, and thank you, Minister, for your enlightened and, and truly excellent talk. But given the topic and, and you know, the, the debating style that's coming out of universities, what I want to do first is take one small comment completely out of context and then have a go at you for it. <laughs> it is very rare indeed to hear praise for marks within these hallowed halls. Indeed, I think the CIS could be a safe space <laughs> from Marxism more broadly. Look, I think one of the things that came out of today's talk and, and the, the vast array of topics that we managed to cover is that universities fulfil so many more roles now than, than once they did. And, and I know, particularly from my own experience, that coming into university in the commerce, finance, economic faculties, where so few of these debates seem to happen around freedom of speech, moving into to the legal faculty and, and all these different things, that one of the challenges for university is how do we get all of these disparate roles to function together? Uh, and I think it, it is a real concern when you see that monoculture coming, when you see that restriction of debate, when the restriction of the development of ideas, because one of the key roles of university is to, to sort of generate and format new ideas and, and when you're only looking for ideas in one place that, that tends to be very restrictive. Um, I'm not personally sure that liberal arts colleges contribute that much to diverse thought unless your idea of diversity is left and further left. But like my colleague Jeremy Samet did you know, looking at university freedom charters, I think there's a lot of work for the, the kind of, uh, of things that you're talking about in terms of protecting free speech on Australian campus in terms of developing new and, and conflicting ideas. Um, so Minister Stokes, thank you so much for your speech today. It was fantastic. Um, and can you all please join me in thanking the Minister for his excellent talk. <laughs> <laughs>